You sending the whoop? Shit, that's all you had to say. Get away from her, you bitch. Banana. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. You're not even interesting enough to make me sick. It's only an island if you look at it from the water. I'm your density. You think I'm gorgeous? You want to kiss me? Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sending the Wolf. My name is Clark Wolf. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a great show today. I'm very excited about it. Today, I have Kaylin Corrigan on the show. Kaylin is a writer and contributor to uh, just countless outlets uh, writing about film and genre and pop culture. You've read her work um, on Playboy.com, Bloody Disgusting, Birth Movies, Death, Collider, and a million others. Um, and today we're going to do the, we're, it says Carrie, I know, um, but we're going to do the unofficial Brian De Palma episode. So the um, Hector Navarro Snow White episode was kind of the inspiration for this one. Basically, when Hector picked Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, he picked that movie because he wanted to do the unofficial animation episode. And what ensued was a conversation where we absolutely talked about Disney and, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and the legacy left behind by that film and by Walt Disney. But we also expanded that out and talked a lot about animated movies in general and the legacy of animated movies and animated movies as a medium and versus a genre and so on and so forth. And um, so today, Kaylin and I have been trying to figure out the best way to do an episode together for a while, because I've been wanting to have her on the show for a while. And um, we first thought we were going to do like, you know, a combination of a handful of episodes and do it as a mini. Um, but but ultimately, we just decided to to start by talking about Carrie, Brian De Palma's uh, Stephen King adaptation that is still a modern horror classic and sort of expand out from there. And what was really exciting about that is Kaylin is a huge Brian De Palma fan. Kaylin is a really good friend of mine. And um, we talk about film and we talk about art all the time. And what's fun about Kaylin is that she and I have very different tastes. I would say we are like 50-50. Half of the time we are right on the same page with one another. And then the other half of the time we could not you know, could not be on the other end of the spectrum in terms of our taste. So um, I have never been a big De Palma fan ever, and I'm still not. And um, but as a result, you know, I knew that Kaylin was going to be the best person to talk to about not only about um, his movies, but about his aesthetic and his style and him as a director and him as a person. And um, even though I always say these shows aren't supposed to be a history lesson, Kaylin is uh, so intelligent and knows so much, so many facts and and tidbits about production and things like that. So I, I think this is going to be a really, really fun episode, and I think you guys are going to enjoy it. Um, 
The live episode of Sending the Wolf is coming up. It's getting so close. It's coming up in June at the Terminus Conference in Atlanta. Um, you can get your all-access badges at TerminusEvent.com. And if when you're buying them, you put in the code SENDING, S-E-N-D-I-N-G, the wolf, all one word, um, you get, I, I forget how much off, but you get a pretty good percentage off. And the conference is going to be great for fans of pop culture and entertainment, people who are working in the industry, who want to work in the industry, covering movies and some TV and games and um, all kinds of media. So that show is going to be on Saturday, uh, June 16th. We are, gosh, it's like a month away. I can't believe it. And we are going to be hammering out our um, the final details of our guest coming soon. So stay tuned, but you definitely want to come on out to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and I think that's going to do it for this morning. Thank you all for listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. Um, and please, uh, if you don't mind, leave a review in your iTunes or your your iTunes app, your podcast app of choice. It helps other people find the show. Um, and that's going to do it. Okay, so please enjoy Kaylin Corrigan and I discussing Brian De Palma's Carrie. <laughs> Uh, I'm really excited. We were talking about this um, outside before we started, before we came inside. And, um, you know, De Palma, just in general, is is a director who I've never personally responded to. Like, he's not one of my favorites. Um, but, um, but I know he's like, is he your favorite director? Quite possibly. Okay. He's definitely up there. And was, so was Carrie the first De Palma movie that you saw or that you remember seeing? Oh, that's a good question. I think the first De Palma movie I ever saw was Mission Impossible. Because mm. a lot of people forget that he yes, directed the first one. Sure. Which is a big reason why the first one is so effective. Because he's actually the one that came up with the scene that everybody loves where Tom Cruise is dangling mm. above the ground in the uh-huh. white room. Because um, Palma is great at coming up with like big ideas, big set pieces. Mm-hmm. So he came up with the white room. He came up with the end scene where the helicopter is chasing the train. Like all of the big moments that you love and people are constantly trying to top in Mission Impossible movies are actually from De Palma. Okay. Now, would you say that? Would you say that Mission Impossible feels like a Brian De Palma movie to you? It's weird. Well, he is so special. Well, one of the reasons why he's special is because he's so all over the map. Like, Mm -hmm. if you look at his resume, he did Mission Impossible, but then he also did Sisters, but then he also did The Untouchables, Mm -hmm. but then he also did Phantom of the Paradise. (laughs) Yeah. So there's literally nothing he can't do. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it, it is true. He has a very eclectic... Uh, you know, batch of films under his belt. Um, I think Carrie was the first. Carrie was the first one I saw, and it was the the double feature that like ruined my life for a while because we I was like twelve at a Halloween sleepover, and we watched Carrie at night, and then in the morning we woke up and watched uh, The Exorcist, and oh, The Exorcist man. scared me so badly, um, and I couldn't sleep for literally couldn't sleep for a year. Um, but Carrie was also weird and unsettling. And I feel like it's weird and unsettling in a lot of ways, like including 70s ways. 
<laughs> like it's such a like it's like this is wait hold on <laughs> this is weird everyone's weird everyone's talking weird and dressing weird and especially when you're a 12 or however old yeah I was about 12 so you know um but yeah Carrie Carrie is a Carrie is a movie that I personally didn't really ever like until the last time I saw it, which was Halloween screening at the Ace. Um, Brian Fuller introduced it and um, and it was really, and it was fun. It was fun and, and the audience was great. But yeah, that's, it. it I never really liked it. Is that your favorite De Palma movie? <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I can definitely say that. Yeah, and I remember, like, I remember watching The Untouchables when I was in film school. Um, not that it, it wasn't being taught in film school, but I just was going through like a bunch of, um, you know, a bunch of classics. And uh, and I remember watching The Untouchables and kind of just being like, okay, and um, and and so on. So so yeah, he's just a director that. But but if you are a fan of film. He is a director who comes up in all of the behind the scenes stories and all of the like he is a trailblazer. And you mentioned this the other day, like that club, the not a real club, but you know, the Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, De Palma yeah. group. Francis Ford Coppola. Uh-huh. Yeah. In fact, a lot of people uh don't realize that those guys were friends or realized what an impact they had on each other's careers. Like the whole reason why Star Wars has that big scroll mm-hmm. at the beginning that tells you what's happening is because George Lucas showed the movie to De Palma without that scroll and De Palma was like George I don't know what's going on yeah I have no idea what's happening you have to do something to show me or tell me what this story is so he added the scroll and now that's the iconic moment at the beginning of every Star Wars movie yeah it's a fun it's a fun little section in that Spielberg documentary on HBO where they sort of talk about that group at the time and how Steven Spielberg's first wife Amy Irving was in Carrie and so it's like they're they were kind of all getting to know each other through similar friends. Yeah. So yeah, George Lucas and Brian De Palma actually shared a casting call between Carrie and Star Wars because they were casting at the same time and Amy Irving came very close to being Princess Leia. Oh, that's interesting. I that's interesting. I think they made the right choices. I think so too. So with Carrie, I noticed you brought the book. I did. Which I love. Now you've you've read the book, I'm yes. assuming. So, uh, Brian Fuller is like a fame, he is such a, he famously loves Carrie and I've heard him on podcasts kind of talking about, kind of talking about the differences between like his TV movie, was it? Yeah, there's been a few iterations of Carrie, none of which have really lived up to Brian De Palma's version. Yeah, I think that. If I'm not mistaken, because I've never seen it, but I'm pretty sure Brian Fuller did a TV movie adaptation of Carrie and left the ending. Isn't there like a courtroom drama at the end? Yeah, there's uh, the book is structured very differently than Brian De Palma's film because the book is mainly in the courtroom. Mm. There's lots of brackets, um, which was in the original screenplay that Larry Cohen wrote. But then when De Palma got his hands on it, he instantly took that out because he was like that doesn't make sense narratively, which was a solid choice. But 
most of what happens in the book is flashbacks that they're reliving through the court case. Sure, sure. And so, um, but yeah, I think uh, it's been, it's fun to listen to, especially super fans, kind of compare De Palma's movie to the book to their own take on it or their own spin on it. Um, but yeah, and Carrie, but I, I think Carrie is important in a, for a lot of reasons, but one of them, and it comes up on this show a lot, is when we talk about genre and we talk about we talk about genre and we talk about ah, messing with my microphone and that's what I get. <laughs> um, respect for genre, like the notion that Piper Laurie would be nominated for an Oscar for Carrie or um, and, Car- and Sissy Spacek would be, and, and rightfully so, because they're excellent performances. Yeah. But there's something about... I don't know where everyone's mindset is now, where where that type of recognition is so few and far between. Yeah, and even at the time that they were making the movie, uh, United Artists made United Artists made Carrie, and it was kind of something that they were trying to you know sweep under the rug because they weren't very proud of it. They thought it was kind of like a, a dirty horror mm-hmm. movie because they like made Rocky that same year that they made Carrie. Mm-hmm. And then they only expanded it to a few theaters and then it started to blow up and they're like, oh, we have something here. And then it was like crazy that those two actresses wound up being nominated for Oscars, mm-hmm. just kind of blowing expectations out of the water. And, and isn't there, um, like, I've, I've always read that, Sissy Spacek really had to fight really hard to get that role, but she really wanted it. And which I which I find fascinating because the idea that this that this young actress would want to take on that role in particular and like track somebody down and be like, you have to give me this part. Like I just I find that so interesting. Yeah, like the studio didn't even want to test Sissy Spacek right. because they just thought that she was completely wrong for the role. And she wasn't very big at that point. Uh, De Palma knew her because she painted sets on Phantom of the Paradise. Mm-hmm. And so she was begging him to let her audition. And he was like, I don't know. I have a, a girl in mind already. Because he was already planning on using Amy Irving as uh, Carrie in the movie. But she actually had secured a commercial, which you probably know as an actor is not the easiest thing in the world to do no. and walked away from it to go audition for Carrie. Wow. And then the minute she did, of course, everybody was like, oh yes, this is our Carrie. So, okay. What, um, what would you say do you, with, when it comes to Carrie, like, why do you think the movie works? Is there, I know that's a big question, but from where I'm sitting, I feel like First of all, it's Stephen King's source material, which is great. I mean, I know at the time when the De Palma movie came out, that was sort of the first big Stephen King adaptation that kind of kicked everything off. But um, I I think about the remake, the Kimberly Pierce. It was Kimberly Pierce, right? Yes. Yeah. So the Kimberly Pierce remake, um, which should have, I, I just, I feel like that movie should have been so much stronger it should have been better um and it could have been and when I when I say that like obviously it's real easy for me to be an asshole and sit here and be like that movie should be better but what I mean is in addition to having incredible talent behind the camera and incredible talent on screen it was incredibly topical the the notion that you know this talking about bullying and also um talking about uh teenagers massacring other teenagers at school and um you know I felt like Carrie was set the remake was such a missed opportunity it was a remake that I actually wanted um and um but anyway so I say that to say there's 
there's a lot of things that have to come together to make it work. But do you think that there's one thing in particular that stands out to you um, that why Carrie has endured and why it clicked and why it worked um, in the in De Palma's version? Yeah, I think that one, even though the remake that Kimberly Pierce did technically is a closer adaptation of the original novel because it is told in that courtroom setting and they stick very much more strictly to the story. I feel like De Palma understood the mother-daughter dynamic mm. much better than Kimberly Pierce did. I remember a scene in the the beginning of the remake that was just really strange blocking and it like mm. took me out of it immediately because it was the scene where Carrie and her mom were fighting and Carrie is standing up and her mom is sitting down and Carrie's kind of towering over her, yelling at her. And I was like, maybe at the end of the movie that would happen, but that's not who this character is yet. Right. She's been abused and sheltered her entire life. She's this shy, frail thing. There's no way that she would stand up to her mother like that in like the first act. Mm -hmm. That just feels like you don't understand this character very mm -hmm. well. Um, so I feel like De Palma understands the mother-daughter dynamic a lot better. And also... I, I really love the idea of how he uses telekinesis and kind of uses that with Carrie's mother because telekinesis, for one, is so hard to do correctly. Mm -hmm. And Palma did it twice with Carrie and the Fury. But the way that he does it by having Carrie's mother be this, you know, overbearing religious zealot who's constantly bombarding her daughter with prayer and punishment through religion by making her go in her closet and then Carrie gets so angry and repressed that it winds up coming out in this telekinesis it's kind of reverting back to the idea of like witchcraft mm -hmm. and how you know that's a sin and if you're a sinner and you um I'm trying to think how I want to say this <laughs> The idea that, because um, I think there's even a part in De Palma's Carrie where the mom is watching her daughter get ready for prom and she says, thou shall not suffer a witch to live because mm -hmm. she realizes that Carrie has these powers and that it's going against God. But the whole idea of witchcraft stems from women trying to be sexual beings and people telling them that it's sinful and it's not right. Um, De Palma's movie just like the book, opens with blood and ends with mm -hmm, blood, mm -hmm. which is not only just showing the violence, but it's signifying Carrie evolving into a woman. Mm -hmm. And as she evolves and, you know, claims her womanhood, she's also kind of becoming a witch. It's, it's kind of the same theme as Robert Eggers' The Witch, mm. the whole idea of, like, overbearing religious parents pushing their kids to this point where they wind up fulfilling the prophecy that their parents are trying to warn sure, them about. Sure. And I think that is very timeless. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I um, when it comes to, you know, women and sexuality in De Palma's movies, and granted, I mean, I haven't seen all of them, um, but I know another one that you love is Dress to Kill. And um, it was very, it was really interesting, the, the parallels uh, between Carrie and Dress to Kill, because it starts with this weird floaty shower scene and like this music and then and then there's this like horrible there's this incident whether it's you know like her the woman being um attacked using quote fingers in the shower um by this man or whether it's Carrie having her period and all the girls like making fun of her and then there are little beats throughout the whole thing like there's the false endings and 
I don't know, but but it, the it's really interesting to me that I just had a lot of problems with the way that like it and and I did a little reading um about Dress to Kill after the fact because it it, it and granted it's a movie from 1980, it's a very different time, but um you know, the, it's criticized for being transphobic, which I don't disagree with. Um, but it's also like it was also criticized for for being pretty brutal to the women in the movie. Um, and I just I wonder I wonder about like his relationship with female sexuality and and if he's you know what what his deal is with that. Yeah. Well. My favorite filmmakers are always the ones that are very honest and kind of use their artwork to vent and put all of the skeletons in their closet up on the screen. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's what De Palma is doing with Dress to Kill, at least partially. He's actually admitted before that Keith Gordon's character in the film is De Palma mm -hmm. because when he was growing up, his father was having an affair and he used to follow his father around mm -hmm. and like wait outside of his office and film him. And then eventually one day, you know, burst in there and confronted him and just kind of lost it. Mm -hmm. And so when Keith Gordon is following this murderer around trying to figure out what's going on, it's literally De Palma mm -hmm. in the movie. So he's kind of dealing with his demons in a way that might seem offensive to people, but it's, I feel like it's just him trying to get this frustration and this anger out. So I'm going to push you a little further on that because that doesn't address female sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> so nice try. Nice dodge. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, I also understand. I'm assuming uh, with an Italian last name like De Palma, mm -hmm. Catholicism showing up in, you know, or or the crucifix and Carrie. And like, I'm assuming that there is some some religious um, influence on him uh, that probably permeated throughout his whole career. And and look, you know, everyone has um, issues around sexuality, especially Americans, because um, we're very sexually repressed, weird culture when it comes to that. But um, but yeah, I'm I'm wondering specifically with with the way that he like some of the scenes in Dress to Kill are explicitly gratuitous. Mm. They feel gratuitous to me. Um, and um, so, yeah, I, I still don't, I still don't know how I feel about that with him. I mean, it's possible because of his father's affair that he sure. does have a problem with women being sexual beings, sure. whether or not he consciously realizes that. Mm -hmm. um, I think he also just likes to explore sexuality through horror mm. and is also a huge fan of Hitchcock. And that movie is very psycho. Oh yes. And it's got the same kind of twist. It's got the main character being killed off in the first act. Right. Uh, he's always implementing Hitchcock into his work. And I think that it's, it's, it's interesting to me to see him well, one being labeled as somebody who's kind of a sleazy director. Yeah. I mean, that's, Oh, it's accurate, but I think because he is so influenced by Hitchcock and people forget that Hitchcock at his time was mm -hmm. very controversial and boundary pushing. Sure. And so in his way, De Palma's kind of doing the same thing and kind of seeing how far he can mm -hmm. push the envelope. 
definitely upping the ante. And to be completely fair, especially when it comes to Dress to Kill and the psycho analysis, like, you know, I mean, there is, um, it, it seems tame to us, but there is sex in Psycho. And, you know, what would be considered, ooh, oh my, you know. Um, and, and Janet Lee's character is, um, yeah, so, so. I understand that if you're doing a loose remake or a loose um, reimagining or something that is inspired by Psycho, um, turning it up to 1980 standards, like that totally, I get I get that part for sure. And I think that there's something to that. Like I think that that's a fair argument because, and you're right, like Hitchcock wasn't considered this classy, you know, like, <laughs> you know, respected and admired film. I mean, he was a very commercial filmmaker and also liked um you know messing with the the censors and messing with that messing with his audience and and pushing people a little further so I get that yeah and I know uh De Palma's films are very very violent and a lot of times the violence is directed towards women uh De Palma's father was an orthopedic surgeon and De Palma kind of grew up inside of an operating room and had a lot of memories of blood being splashed around mm -hmm. and that definitely affected him as you can tell mm -hmm. when you like when you watch Gary yeah at the very end she's completely covered in blood that's kind of him channeling those memories into his work he also just is a, a big person that uh loves really long tracking shots He's got these long moments without dialogue yes. where you're following characters around and operatic music is playing. And he's said before, he's like, if I have these moments where I have to follow a character around for 10 minutes, I'd rather follow a woman. They're, they're prettier. They're more fun to look mm. at. I was like, well, that's true. We are prettier. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Have, can you recall, um, aside from, I don't mean Mission Impossible, but like, and I guess I guess it's the I guess the Untouchables. I'm trying to think of like male dominated protagonists in his and his work. I mean, I like what you, to your point of if I'm going to follow somebody around, I'd rather it be a woman because I'd rather look at a woman for ten minutes. Like, yeah, are there a lot of male heavy men heavy uh, protagonists in his body of work? Not really. I guess it's usually women, or if. The woman isn't the main character. The woman is the one that is driving the plot forward. Yeah. So the man is following the woman right. around. But what's funny is that I, the two films that came to mind immediately were Scarface and Carlito's Way, right. which are the same guy. So right. maybe he doesn't want to follow a guy around unless it's Pacino. Unless it's Al Pacino <laughs> or Kevin Costner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or And I didn't ever see Black Dahlia. Did you see Black Dahlia? I did. Yeah. It's not terrific. Okay. Um... But, but it is about two detectives, those two men that are essentially like trying to solve the case. Is that right? Yeah, it, it's honestly a kind of a, a mess. mess narratively. I mean, you watch it and it definitely feels like De Palma because it's still highly stylized and mm -hmm. well made. Mm -hmm. But it's just such a mess. And it all kind of blurs together for me now when I try to think back on what exactly happened in that movie. Yeah. There's lots of scenes where they remind me of older scenes that he did, but it's it's not something I would recommend, especially if you've never seen De Palma before. Don't let that be your first one. Right, right, <laughs> right. Sure. Well, and so um, with Carrie, um, I I do feel like you know giving credit where credit is due because in addition to 
featuring incredible performances. That movie is, it is very stylized, um, but it is also, there are some images and shots that are just so beautiful and perfect. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think, I think that, I wonder if that was him in his prime, but again, I, I don't know his work as well as I maybe should to make that assessment. But like, for instance, with Scarface, are you, are you a Scarface fan? I like it. I think Carlito's way is better. Yeah. I mean, this is, it, I was on Collider Movie Talk a handful of months ago and we were talking about Scarface and, um, I, I would argue Scarface is not a good movie. Like I, I understand why it's cool. Well, I, you know what I mean? Like, and I understand why, um, there are, you know, posters that you want to hang up or like it's, and Al Pacino is, I mean, playing to the, he's up at 11. Full Pacino. And he's going full Pacino. That's <laughs> right. And, uh, but listen, I like watching Al Pacino go full Pacino. It's fun. It and, is. And it's entertaining as hell. And he commits, you know, and Michelle Pfeiffer is great. And there are great performances in Scarface, but, Ultimately, I just feel like it's not a good movie. Do you know what I mean? It's it's very hokey, um, which is strange because it starts out really dark. Yeah. I remember that scene in the shower with the chainsaw scarring me as right. a kid. So it's weird to think of the rest of the film as being somewhat hokey. Uh, it's definitely had a huge influence on pop culture. Sure. So I guess sure. I'm glad it exists for that reason. But I do remember when I was younger, lots of people telling me this is one of the greatest movies ever made and just being like, I don't get it. Am I not mature enough yet to understand this? And then I got older and I was like, no, I think this is actually not one of his best films. Yeah. it's And it's also, I mean, like I sound like a broken record to people who actually listen to the show regularly, but it is something that is endlessly fascinating to me, especially when it comes to pop culture and entertainment. The idea of best and favorite and you know like Scarface can be everyone's favorite movie and it can be a pop culture touchstone um but that doesn't mean that it's the best you know what I mean like it it's I don't know it's it's so interesting but he is such a stylish I feel like Brian De Palma is such a stylish um and visually capable director and so when you have actors like Al Pacino and Michelle Pfeiffer or like Sissy Spacek and Piper Laurie um etc cetera, etc cetera, that leaps off the screen it's like you know they can't help but give great performances you know and compelling performances so even if the material isn't necessarily the the most sophisticated or the best it's still entertaining as hell to watch and like really well uh, really well placed visually, you know? It's a great background movie for a party. Absolutely. Yes. And I, oh my God, I do not want to go to a Scarface party. <laughs> <laughs> I want to leave there uh, in one piece, but um, that's a great point. That's I'd be a much happier if it was a Carlito's Way party. Yes, fair enough. Well, and you know, it's funny because I, we were talking before we started rolling with Carlito's Way. I, I think I started Carlito's Way um, – one night and then just fell asleep because I put it on Netflix or whatever. And it wasn't that it was boring. It just, I fell asleep. Um, cause I fell asleep anywhere. Um, but Carlito's way is one that I don't think it's talked about as much. Like you're going to, yeah, people are good. People talk about, or they point to Scarface or they talk about and point to untouchables. But for some reason, Carlito's way, just kind of like got a little lost in the, uh, in the time capsule. Do you feel that way? Yeah, it's a real shame that Carlito's Way doesn't have the acclaim that Scarface has. Yeah. Because to me, it's a much better film. It's a better performance from Pacino. 
it's one of the only films I can think of that really uses voiceover really effectively. Because mm. most of the time I find it distracting mm -hmm. when that happens in film. Because it'll either come in at the beginning and then just appear sporadically throughout the film. And you start to wonder why they even bothered to do it in the first place. Yeah. Or it's a character telling you things that you can see with your eyes mm -hmm. that you don't need explained to you. Right. So it feels like too much layered on. That's one of the few films that I think uses it really effectively to enhance the story and has some really great lines in the voiceover. Sure, sure. I mean, that makes sense. I need to give Carlito's Way a watch, like a proper watch that's going to be on my new list. Um, but uh, so to go back to Carrie, um, Carrie is, well, it's the first in the Stephen King adaptations, right? Yeah, it's... Uh, it, it was because it was like the big book, right? Like that was the one that sort of kicked off his career. Yeah, the story that Stephen King almost threw in the trash. Right. That his wife pulled back out and said, no, this is something. Oh, Tabitha. Oh, Tabitha. <laughs> oh, Tabitha King. Um, okay, so, so that is in and of itself a legacy that he arguably you know, helped to create is the idea of, oh, Stephen King books equal make it into a movie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, I feel like Carrie, I do feel like even though it's not my favorite movie of all time, I feel like Carrie does stand the test of time. It, feel, it, it, it feels like a solid movie regardless of, of that. It's definitely one of the best Stephen King adaptations. And because it did, performs so well and it is such a great adaptation that kicked off the Stephen King adaptation phase you have to wonder where we would be in 2018 now here we are with a new it movie mm -hmm. would that have even happened if Brian De Palma hadn't made such a terrific adaptation of Carrie back in 76 yeah I think you're I think that's a good point and also I think that the the thing that he did that was genius that I think people don't do enough when it comes to Stephen King adaptations is actually adapting the material. Meaning it's so easy to just be like, okay, this happens in the book, so now this happens in the movie. And it's like, I think it succeeded um, for many reasons, but because it was truly an adaptation of the novel that took some stuff straight out of it, but also, uh, you know, um, was inspired by. So, like, some of my favorite sequences in the movie are nowhere in the book, um, which is great. I yeah. think that's how you adapt material, you know? And and so it, with Carrie, similarly, um, he had the smarts to, like, sort of strip out all of the, all the courtroom stuff and, like, really just focus in on the story. Yeah, and change the ending. That was such a good choice because even though it works in the book, because, spoiler alert, um, this book came out a long time ago, I'm going to spoil <laughs> it, but at the end of Carrie the novel, uh, Carrie goes back home to her mother, but what she does is she uses her telekinesis to kind of reach inside of her mother's chest and clutch her heart and basically mm. give her a heart attack, so she falls down and dies. And De Palma read this, and he was like... You mean she clutches her chest and falls down? Yeah, it's not visual. <laughs> yeah. It's not visual. And, and but but you know what you just reminded me of is the shining. So this is something where when you think about the hedge animals, like that sounds when you read it, it's so much different than the no the idea that like a topiary is running around. Like how ridiculous would that actually look? It doesn't it doesn't work on the screen the same way that it's not compelling to watch somebody just go ah and like, you know what I mean like no you have to bring that fucking house down and yeah. like crush her that's yeah. what you know that's the whole point 
exactly. Yeah. Uh, what is the... Oh, Christine. Christine uh-huh. is a great example of taking the source material and tweaking it a little bit for your story. Because in the book, Christine, the ghost LeBay is driving around the car the whole time. <laughs> and it, it works. Like, it's goofy. But you know, Stephen King is a terrific writer, so it works when you're reading right. it. But if we had actually seen that happen, what would that look like? Yeah. Well, so what happened... Like, um, in the book... Um, spoiler for the book. But in the book, Carrie, what... If Carrie kills her mother that way... Um, how does Carrie die? Yeah, I remember she kills her mother. Well, first she yeah burns down the school. Then she walks through the streets, and there's this scene that they took out uh, from the movie. Well, they didn't film it; they just didn't use it. But she's walking through the streets and kind of lighting everything on fire and dragging down power cords and basically killing everybody in her path on her way to her house. Goes home, kills her mom, and then walks out into a field and basically just dies. Oh, so she just dies? Yeah, she's just kind of like. She's done. It's been a couple years since I've read it, but I remember her walking out to a field and she's bleeding to death and Mm. then she just kind of lays down and dies. Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is more tragic to see the two of them sort of, um, you know, in the film to see the two of them bound together and. Yeah. And then it brings about that weird notion that perhaps her mom is some sort of martyr because the way she's positioned mimics the little Jesus doll in Carrie's closet which that sparks a whole discussion because how can someone who's been so awful to her daughter be a martyr? But that's an interesting theory. Do you subscribe to that theory? Not really, because her mother, she may have started out Carrie's life with the best of intentions. I don't really think so. I think she's always been kind of a crazy religious zealot that uses her daughter to further her agenda. But... Yeah, it it strikes me more as like if that's the place that Carrie got shoved into over and over and over again, that of course that's the image that she sees. So of course when she's going to kill her mother, that's how she's going to recreate yeah. that. It, she's just recreating the image that she's seen a million times. Like, I don't know if I would, I don't know if I, I, <laughs> I buy into that theory that they're trying to like murder her. Yeah. And it's just more visually. I mean, yeah, and it's also creepy as fuck. So there's that. (laughs) Um, Well, and you know, Carrie also, there was, it was interesting because I really like how in the first Carrie movie, in De Palma's Carrie, they do something, he, he really cast the right people and, and really found the right people to bring those roles to life because I like the arc of watching the kids, like some of the kids be assholes the whole time. Some of the kids like kind of be like, nah, I don't really think that like this is cool. And, um, but it always, meanwhile, in the Kimberly Pierce movie, I was like, I'm kind of on Sue Snell's side. Like that's wrong. I should not be feeling that way. So this movie is not working. But, um, but uh, the thing that, the death that always got me in Carrie, in De Palma's Carrie, was the teacher. Yeah. I thought that was bullshit. He should not have killed her. <laughs> I mean, I get it. It's I get what it's saying. Like, I, I get the idea, but but that one always upsets me. Yeah, it's like blind rage. Yes. She's just no longer in reality. I mean, she sees the teacher laughing at her, and she's probably not actually laughing at her. That that was something that I picked up on really for the first time um, at, the, at the screening I went to at the ACE was um, – I started to really wonder how much in that scene 
was actually happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like how much she was, and not like, oh, she's, the teacher is laughing at something else. Like, I don't even know if the teacher's laughing at all. Like I got to a point where I was really, because I have seen the movie many times, despite not like, (laughs) 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 and so, um, but, but I really picked up on that time. Like I was like, no, I don't think this is, I think she's just imagining things at this point. Yeah, it's entirely possible that maybe a few kids are laughing at her, but when she sees the entire gym right. just burst into laughter, I think that's just her snapping. Yes. And, you know, uh, so we were with our mutual friend, I was with our mutual friend Chelsea, um, and wh- and I, I remember commenting on that after the fact. Like, I remember um, saying when we left the movie, uh, I cannot imagine that not one person in that gym would realize, like, whoa, what just happened? And run to the stage and like try and help her. Not one. Like, I I don't know. And I said, um, anecdotally, my high school, I mean, look, no one's high school is perfect, but like, I know plenty of people in my high school who would have been like, whoa, this is fucked up. Like, let's help her. And, and Chelsea said, nope, not in my high school. And I was like, (laughs) oh, okay. So, so perhaps like my experience is not the norm, but, but that was something that always struck me too, was like, I don't believe that there wasn't one person that would have run up there to try and help her. Yeah. There's, it's just, kind of ridiculous to assume that every single person in that school is evil. I know that kids can be rough, but that's a lot to assume that the entire dance is just like laughing so hard they're crying at this poor girl on stage. Yeah. And especially too, because she just like, well, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it's real or not, but it is upon rewatch things that stand out and, and yeah, like it, but, but then again, it's a fantasy. It's not, you know, like it's not, it's make believe. It can be whatever, like yeah. it can be whatever they want. And I'm not upset by this. I'm not saying like shame. I'm not saying like I'm mad at you, Brian De Palma, for for showing something that's not real. It's like no, I I just. But it is something that just analytically was always very interesting to me. Yeah. Um. So we've talked very none about blow up, blow up, blow out, blow out, blow up is a different movie. Yes. In- yes. Influence blow out. There you go. So. so this is one that I haven't seen. It is now. I think it's available on Stars, and um. So I am gonna watch it eventually. But um. But yeah, let's talk about that one. So so this is Kaylin's trifecta. <laughs> uh, her De Palma trifecta and um, so so why is this one the third the third one yeah so I think Blowout is probably the best movie that De Palma has ever made and probably the least seen mm-hmm. um, it, it took me a long time to see it actually it wasn't until a couple years ago that I, I finally sat down and watched it just because friends kept telling me mm-hmm. how great it was and yeah, I've always loved John Travolta. Yes. He's actually my first celebrity crush. Oh. Yeah. Very, very cute. Little Kaylin loved him in Greece. But <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, what's not? Come <laughs> on. He he was in like peak dreamy and singing and dancing. I'm just like, get 
out of town. He can dance. He can dance and he can sing and I am just, oh my God. I'm. This is a side note tangent, but uh, I am the biggest sucker for men singing and dancing well. I am just like, ah. I went and saw Jersey Boys and I was just like, I love this show. <laughs> it was in the hog heaven. So I'm with you. Like Greece, I grew up on Greece. I do love Greece. I know it's not politically correct or cool to like Greece anymore, but I like Greece. Um, I feel like everybody who's cool likes Greece too better and I'm like, whatever. But Those either people way. people don't understand. Yeah, they don't They know. don't get it. But yes, okay, so Travolta. Yes, so Travolta, uh, his first movie was Carrie, I yes, believe. I believe um, so. So Palma kind of sort of discovered him. So by the time Blowout came around, he was going to use some other actor, whoever he could find, and then Travolta said he wanted to do it, which up to the budget and got it more recognition. But still, yeah, not very many people have seen it. But the story is about uh, John Travolta plays Jack Terry, who is a movie sound recordist uh he works on cheap b movie horror movies and what he does is he goes out with his recording gear and records sounds like whenever you hear a sound in a movie like the wind blowing or an owl hooting or a car crashing somebody has to record those sounds and that's what he does in this movie so one night he's out recording and there's a car crash that happens next to him and he witnesses it and dives down into the water because the car crashes off the bridge into a lake and there's two people in there but it's clear that the driver is long gone so Travolta drives and dives down there and saves the girl and drags her out and then starts to notice strange things happening and inadvertently becomes involved in this huge conspiracy theory because people are asking him not to tell anybody that the girl was in the car and he doesn't understand why. And it turns out that the guy driving the car was a presidential candidate who so, was married to somebody else. So, sorry to interrupt, but was this after Chappaquiddick? Like, like you know, the after Ted Kennedy and after, like, the real incident? Yeah, is uh, I wonder if it was inspired. Yeah, it definitely... Um, De Palma has said that he was very inspired by the Kennedy assassination. Okay. And this movie is kind of him contemplating that because it is one of the most well-researched conspiracy theories of all time. We still don't know really who killed Kennedy. And what De Palma is trying to say with Blowout is that after all this time, even if we did actually find out who killed Kennedy, would anybody care? Probably right. not. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's it sounds actually rather timely given our our um, our affinity for conspiracy theories at the culturally at the moment. Yeah, and it's also a Fourth of July movie. Oh, so. perfect timing! <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just utterly devastating. That's so great, America. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. has one of the most devastating endings I've ever seen. It's heartbreaking every time I watch it. Um, I'm debating whether or not to spoil it because you haven't seen it. So I would love for you to see it without knowing what happens. Okay, I don't tell me then. We, we usually do spoilers because it's like, oh, these movies are 40 years old like or 50 years old or 60 years old. But it because this one is less less seen, let's try to not. Yeah. Also, because I'm going to go watch it. You should watch it. It's terrific. It's beautifully shot. Um, I still can't believe how pretty this film is. Lots of really great split diopter shots, like the one he doesn't carry in Mm -hmm. the classroom when Billy and Carrie are in the same frame, but Billy's up close and Carrie's Mm -hmm. behind him. 
they they do that a lot and blow out. Um, De Palma is the king of split diopter and split screenshots. Uh, the the main difference, if you're not a huge nerd who spends her time looking up things like this, is that uh, split screen, you'll see the line down the middle of the screen and two different scenes are happening simultaneously. Split diopter is the same scene, but one person's in the foreground and one person's in the background, right. which forces you to pay attention to something that the filmmaker wants you to look at. Yep. Got it. I've learned something. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so overall, what is it? Can you, can you, okay, so when we were talking about this actually the other night, I was thinking to myself, like, why, I wonder if I could boil down why Kaylin likes Brian De Palma so much. And something that you say as you talk about him and his work is, it sounds like intention. Like, basically, he is a very intentional filmmaker. He does things on purpose. And he's like, I own this. You know what I mean? This is me. Um, would, is that, do you think that that's why? Or, like, what can you can you even sort of boil down what it is about his work that, that speaks to you so strongly? It, it is hard to say, but that's definitely probably the biggest thing that I like about him. I like very purposeful filmmakers where it feels like they know exactly what they're doing. They have a vision and they know how to execute it. That's why I love The Shining so much. Mm. Um, I think that every scene in that movie, if it's not just set up beautifully and is visually stunning, has something it's trying to tell you. Same with Manhunter, which You've probably heard me rant about this. A lot of people have heard me rant about this movie. This movie is so unsung. It is so terrific. And every single scene is important. Yes. Every single blocking moment in that movie is important. Michael Mann is extremely purposeful. And that movie is extremely underrated. Shot in Atlanta. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh. That, that scene where he's running through that big, beautiful building, yes. that's the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. Oh, I love that building. Mm-hmm. Michael Mann is great at locations. Yes. Yes, he is. Yeah. Yes. He's, uh, what was that movie that came out recently? Um, the guy that made Tangerine? Oh, mm-hmm. Uh, Florida, Florida Project? Florida Project. Yeah. That, I was watching that movie and I kept thinking... This just shows you the importance of locations. Like yes. you could have a very thin plot, but if you have your characters in interesting locations, you can make a movie. Yeah, I mean, I I don't disagree. I mean, it's it's cliche to say, but a lot of times the whole idea of like, no, the the location is like a character. I mean, that's uh, you know, that's not wrong. Like yeah. I think that that's actually there's a lot to that. There there can be not always, but there definitely can be. Okay. So, all right, so everybody gets to, um, so Carrie's on the thrills list, I think. See, facts, whatever. Um, but Carrie, I think, is on the thrills list. So, uh, but you can add a movie to any list if you want. None of, I mean, basically, like, oh, I actually don't know. Is the untouch, maybe the untouchables would be on one of these lists. Um, but uh, everybody gets to add a movie that's not on the list to the list. I'm assuming, I don't want to assume, but I'm assuming one of the trifecta would be your addition, but you tell me. Yeah, I looked up the list today, Mm -hmm. the AFI thrill list, and it said, regardless of genre, we're putting movies here that are extremely like adrenaline-fueling and very tense. And I looked through the list, and I looked through it a couple times just to make sure I wasn't wrong. I could not believe that Texas Chainsaw Massacre was not on there. Mm. I can't think of a more tense movie than Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah, interesting. And, and that is the um, the thrills list is kind of their like clever way of saying 
horror list without making a horror list because and it's clearly not a horror list because there's lots of other stuff on it but that's sort of where they shove all their horror movies yeah um i agree and um well that that is actually where the idea of the guest getting to add a list or get add a movie to the list comes from was the thing is not on the thrills list yeah and i was like uh, what i mean i just don't like that doesn't Makes sense. That's not, I just feel like it's objectively wrong. That's nuts. You know, like the, the special, specifically, I'm sorry, listeners, I say this all the time, but specifically the scene where they test the blood. Yes. I'm just like, I don't understand how this doesn't get you onto, I, what? That doesn't make any sense. No. I, yeah, to, to leave the thing off, to leave Texas Chainsaw Massacre off, Texas Chainsaw is, one of the greatest movies ever made, honestly, and extremely influential. I mean, I was just watching Revenge last mm-hmm. weekend, and there's shots in there, close-up of her eyeballs looking around. It's very Texas Chainsaw yeah. Massacre, and it's still effective. Yeah. Yeah, it's Texas Chainsaw. You know, it's funny. I have, um, before Toby Hooper passed, I or, or maybe actually it was... Maybe it was somebody talking about Toby. Maybe it was Marilyn Chambers. I can't remember. But somebody was talking about how... So there's this, like, urban myth, filmmaking myth, that um, Toby Hooper wanted the movie to look grimy and gritty and ugly and like it was found docu-footage. And um, that's not true. Like, he actually was very happy when the 4K came out and they, like, restored it and made it look clean. And I talked to a lot of... um, fans who are like oh it it looks too nice you know and it's like but that's what he wanted he wanted like a real movie you know and I think that to your point about it being one of the greatest movies ever made like I don't disagree with that um it is a brilliant film for a lot of reasons and and so many of the shots are so iconic um but I think part of the reason in addition to the fact that it is called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre (laughs) which is not a palatable title and and in addition to the fact that it is a horror movie where people are, that is very twisted. Um, I think that because the movie had been seen by most people in a really grimy, gritty way, people don't take it seriously, you know, yeah. in addition to the subject matter and the fact that it's a horror movie, but, and it's low budget, but like, and I think that that's not fair. I think that's a detriment, you know, to, to if the movie should be remembered and how it should be remembered. Yeah, because it is not easy to create tension in a film. No. It is very easy to bore your audience. So the fact that Toby Hooper went out and made this movie super low budget with some no-name actors, and every time you watch it, still, when I go back and revisit it, I find myself holding my breath at times because it's just so incredibly tense and it really doesn't let up until the final scene. And that's for many reasons that you probably couldn't recreate today. The fact that they're out in... Texas where it's extremely hot and they don't have trailers and poor Gunnar Hansen is wearing the same outfit Ugh, every single day. So gross. And running around with a real chainsaw. They didn't take the blades off. Yeah. He's chasing Marilyn around with a real chainsaw. She looks terrified because she is terrified. Yeah. The scenes where she's running through the trees and screaming, it's because her hair is getting ripped out. When she jumped out of the window, she broke her ankle. Yeah. I mean, it's like a it's a real film. The people are feeling what you're feeling. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I don't disagree. I would add it as well. Um, and speaking of thrills, so as a little tease, 
for our audience, Kaylin and I are going to do a spoilery conversation about Hereditary, which is a very thrilling new movie. <laughs> <laughs> to put it lightly. To put it lightly. It's a feel-good family film. Yeah, feel-good. That, totally. Um <laughs> And our intention is to make it a mini. However, something tells me that it's going to be longer than that. But we'll see. We will try to contain ourselves. I, it's going to be hard. I've been dying to talk about this movie. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, it's going to be great. So uh, stay tuned for Hereditary with full spoilers. Um, and go see Hereditary because it is fucked up. But And people are going to... Okay, so... This is this is the perfect end to this tease because um, I am so curious how people are going to react to this movie. I cannot tell if people are going to love it and it's going to find like a mass audience or if people are going to be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> this is not The Conjuring. I am leaving. Like, you know what I mean? This is not... Fun, um, and it is long, yeah, and stuff. So this is my tease for this episode. But I am so curious how people will react. I can't wait to see how people react. I think they're gonna flip out. Like I was talking about this last night after I watched it. I was like, what if they like ban this movie? Right. I mean, it is so grim and upsetting. I can't imagine general audiences watching this movie. Nope. And and grim is the word that I I would use as well. And uh, and to 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 really end this tease. Um I still don't know if I really like this movie or not. I've seen it twice and I need to see it again. Um it is undeniable how well acted it is and how intentional it is. Yes. It is very intentional. It is truly crafted. So regardless of if I like it or not, it is undeniable that this is real filmmaking and this is real acting um, in a genre setting. But I still don't know if I like this movie or not. It's hard to like a movie that makes you feel like you just got punched in the chest. That is also true. So stay tuned. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast already, <laughs> subscribe. If you uh, haven't, you know, contributed to Patreon, if you want to contribute to Patreon, you can do that because maybe this will be, maybe the Hereditary episode will be there. I don't know. Um, but Kaylin, this is great. Thank you. And I'm thank excited you. to dive into, uh, and thank you for teaching me the ways of Brian De Palma. I'll bring you over to my side. I, I believe you. I believe you. I, I would say something that would uh, that would really break your heart, but we have a whole nother conversation to have, so maybe I'll save it for the end of that. It bookends, but to be continued. Oh, what a tease we are. Oh, Hereditary. You are a movie that I cannot stop thinking about. For a movie that I don't even know if I really like, I cannot stop thinking about it. But I hope you enjoyed that episode. I hope you enjoyed that conversation about Brian De Palma and, uh, of course, Carrie. So here's how we're going to do the Hereditary of it all. I, um, I thought about it, and there is not going to be a mini this week on Patreon. So um, we're going to do like we did last week. For my Patreon friends who's, 
contribute $5 or more on a monthly basis, I invite you to please participate in our movie live stream this Saturday, May 26th. Um, we are voting on the movie now on Patreon. So go on in there and um, and take your pick. I, I really enjoyed having a big group. Um, that was a lot, a lot of fun. And um, so I, I look forward to doing that again. I think we had a big group for Back to the Future back in March and it was a lot of fun. So we're going to do that again. So there's no mini this week, but you do get to participate in the live stream if you want. And the Hereditary episode filled with spoilers is going to be out the week of June 8th. So that will be the Tuesday, the 5th episode. Um, Hereditary comes out on Friday, June 8th. So we'll put it out in case you got to see it a little earlier, in case you're you like spoilers, which again, I honestly, I don't know if it's better to know what you're getting into before you go into this movie. It's like the one occasion where I would ever entertain that idea, but to each their own, there's a lot to unpack. It is a full episode. Um, and we're going to break the format a little bit. You know why? Cause it's my show. I can do whatever I want. So no mini this week. Um, please join us $5 and higher contributors on Patreon for the live stream, uh, the group live stream on Saturday, May 26th in the morning, usually 10 AM Pacific standard time and stay tuned. If you haven't already, and you liked listening to Kaylin, um, subscribe to the podcast because you're not going to want to miss the hereditary episode. It's um, it's a really, really good one. We had a great conversation. Alrighty, friends, that's going to do it for me today. Thank you all so much for listening, and I will see you soon. 